0: Well, good barely afternoon. Uh, <laughs> I want to thank you all for being here. It's my—I uh, have the honor and privilege of introducing our guest speaker today. Uh, before I uh, fully do that, though, I want to give you a little background on uh, Joseph Castleberry, Dr. Joseph Castleberry. He's been the president of Northwest University since August of 2007. He actually started out in Alabama and had gone uh, several different places including new jersey new york city texas costa rica el salvador ecuador and missouri before landing here with us in washington he's been a youth pastor he was the assemblies of god chaplain at princeton he spent 20 years as a missionary in latin america uh, three of those years as a university professor and pastor in El Salvador, became the associate dean for Latin America at Global University in Texas. Uh, he went on to serve as a pastor, seminary dean, and community development leader in Ecuador, he returned to the United States in 2002, where he was the academic dean of the Assemblies of God Theological Seminary until beginning his time at Northwest University. Wow, that is a journey. He is also an author. Uh, he has uh, written two books that we have; uh, they're available to you for sale downstairs. If you do buy those, all the money goes to Northwest University, so it's a way you can help support uh, the university. I would definitely take a look at those on the table downstairs. Uh, his wife, Kathleen, uh, you'll hear about more later, uh, and he has three daughters: Jessica, Jody, and Sophie. And it is. Uh, I have to say, I heard him speak this morning, I've heard him speak before, and I cannot really tell you how excited I am for you guys to have an opportunity to hear uh, just his perspective and his heart, uh, I think, uh, brought here to us by the Holy Spirit. So uh, let's welcome Dr. Joe Castler.
1: Thank you, (laughs) Pastor. Thank you, thank you. It's uh, wonderful to be with you. It's always exciting for me to be in Seattle. It's, uh, you know, it's just such a culturally different place than the place I grew up in. Uh, I grew up in Alabama, uh, born in 1960 in Demopolis, Alabama. That's just a few miles from Selma. Lived through the Selma, uh, the Civil Rights Movement, and all of those things. Saw the world turned completely upside down in my childhood and. Uh, boy, it's been a cultural journey from there till now. And uh, it's just, we love being here. This is my eighth year at Northwest University, and we've uh, seen 43% growth in the student enrollment in In those years. The college is just flourishing. We're adding programs every year. We added a dozen uh, graduate programs in the last few years, and just flourishing. And it's exciting to see the college doing well at a time that is just tremendous period of upheaval for the higher education uh, industry, so to speak, and uh, God is with us, and it's been exciting to see the university really coming into its uh, full maturity as a, you know, used to be a Bible college, uh, started here in Seattle 80 years ago, and is uh, now a a really substantial comprehensive university, have about the same level of academic uh, offerings and diversity as, say, Central Washington or Western or Eastern Washington universities and, uh, all in a Christian environment that takes, uh, very seriously the Christian's responsibility to live, catch this, one life, (laughs) one life. I love the name of your church because that's the point. I mean, one of the biggest problems in the kingdom of God today is Christians living, uh, double lives, living one thing at church and then another thing out in their, in the world of their profession. And, uh, it's uh, it just crucial that we live one life, that it be one integrated life of worship to Jesus Christ uh, in everything we do, whether it's our work life or whether it's our family life our, or certainly our church life and uh, every other dimension that we live. And last year, I wrote a book uh, essentially about that subject. It's called The Kingdom Net, Learning to Network Like Jesus, And I wrote this book for Christian business people, and Christian professionals, because there is nothing more powerful in God's hands than our personal and professional networks. And this book is a theology of networking and a practical book about how to make the most of our personal connections for Jesus. And then this book is called Your Deepest Dream, and it's based on the concept that uh, people generally have their dreams all turn around backwards. Uh, you know, people think they're supposed to fulfill a dream and they, they're supposed to live their life in fulfillment of the dream. Well, that's that's backward. God's put a dream in us so that the dream can fulfill us. And this book is about us defining that dream that God's put in our lives so that we can make the absolute most of our lives so we can live fulfilled lives uh, in which we accomplish the will of God and uh, really fulfill our total humanity before God. And uh, these two books are available for you. Every penny that you spend on these books will go directly to help scholarships at Northwest University. And uh, so they're on a donation basis, $10 for the little one and 15 for the big one. And um, I hate to do commercials, but I have found that if I don't give a commercial for the book, people don't know they want it. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, I don't get to bless you through the book unless I tell you about it. So... At any rate, I hope that you'll, some of you will enjoy those, and I'm excited about preaching the Word of God to you today. Would you turn your Bible to Romans eight fourteen? Usually that means on your cell phones. I invite you to turn on your cell phones and smartphones and find the Bible there or look at it on the screen, but I invite you to stand with me as we read Romans eight fourteen through 27. The name of the sermon today is Off the Script the mysterious freedom of praying in the Spirit. Romans 8, 14. Listen to the Word of God. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons and daughters, by whom we cry, Abba, Father, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. But we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons and daughters, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what is seen. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the spirit helps us in our weakness for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. You may be seated. Pastor Greg and I were talking this morning and we, were, uh, we got off on the topic of sometimes it just feels easier to say something in one language than in another one. And uh, I live with this all the time because I spent 20 years working in Spanish and speaking in Spanish every day. And even today, I speak a little bit of Spanish pretty much every day. I write a blog in Spanish to keep my skills strong, and I have a book coming out in Spanish in the fall, in August, called uh, "The New Pilgrims: How Immigrants Are Renewing America's Faith." And that book is a—it's going to be a blockbuster. It's coming out uh, at the same time in English and Spanish, and. very different look at immigration today and what God is doing through it there's a massive revival among immigrants in our country but you know I live my life between these two languages and sometimes I find that when I want to say something it comes to me in Spanish first I think it in Spanish and then I can't think of how you say that in English <laughs> it happens to be probably every couple of uh, every few, every two or three days it'll happen to me that I'll think something first in Spanish and then how do you say that and a lot of words in English, you know, they're just so well said in another language that we just say them in that language. For example, the word entrepreneur. There's no word in English for what an entrepreneur is and does, and so we just borrow the French word. They say it so well. Um, well, we could say one who starts businesses, but it just isn't as elegant as entrepreneur. <laughs> well, you know, there's, there's lots of things like that, and uh, sometimes it's just hard to express yourself in language. Uh, sometimes you can say it better in another language, and sometimes you can't say what you really feel at all. Um, you know, it's, there's a book out a few years ago called "The Five Love Languages." So pretty much everybody has seen that book, and they're just they're they're in that book. They're identified five different ways in which people express their love for for each other, and that people can can understand love that is being expressed to them. And um, you know, I'm a I'm a words guy. <clears throat> you know, I, my love language is words of affection. My, life's, my wife's love language is um, acts of service. And I happen to be a southerner. And so southern boys are trained, or at least they used to be, um, <clears throat> from the time they're very little to seek ways of serving women and making their life as elegant and easy as possible. Uh, When I I got to New Jersey, I found out that those are tools of male oppression, and so people didn't always appreciate my little acts of gallantry when I would offer them, like opening the door first, and I've been corrected for these things, and so I try to be as rude as I can be, but but it just doesn't come naturally, you know? (laughs) So, uh, you know, I just find myself doing these little acts of courtesy, and so... You know my wife and I were in Washington DC the other day and the escalator at the at the uh, Reagan Airport was broken and so we had four big heavy bags plus my computer bag and Uh, I didn't want my wife carrying those bags up the stairs so I said just wait here honey and so I grabbed the two big bags and I trudged up the stairs and dropped them at the first level and then went down and got the other two bags and carried them up to the first level and then I carried the other two up to the top and then so I you know so that she wouldn't have to carry those those bags because it's not it's not right for her to have to do that when I have strong arms and am willing to do it. So, at any rate, I did that. And then we got up to the thing, uh, you know, the counter, and we got our tickets and everything. And unfortunately, I got upgraded to first class, and she did not because I have lots of, you know, miles on that airline. And so. Um, I of course gave her my first class ticket and took her coach so that she would be able to sit in the comfort and have a meal and all this stuff so then we got to the you know where you go in and I'm TSA uh, pre and she is not so I said no I'm not going in there without you they the man wouldn't let us both pass which usually they let you both go but he wouldn't let us go so I refused to go in the pre line and went with her in the in the other line because I'm not going to leave my wife to go through the long line and it's just not going to happen right so so she turns to me, and she says, thank you for the acts of service. And I said to her, baby, I'm hailing you in all languages and on all frequencies. <laughs> Which she especially appreciated being a Star Trek fan. <laughs> so, yeah. now, see, I'm connecting with some of you on this. <laughs> but, you know, the thing is, Kathy's, Kathy is an ISTJ on the Myers-Briggs. And what that means is she... Can't tell you how she's feeling. She does, she can't. It, it, it's you know it's not. You know she might get some words out, but she doesn't. She isn't gonna parse it, right? You know, I think we've been married 31 years now. I tell you, I am more in love with her than the day I married her. More, I, you know, it's I, I just think she's the greatest thing that ever happened to the world, and, except Jesus and uh, <laughs> she's right there next to Jesus right there and um you know she's she's got this set of blue eyes every time I see them the first time of the morning that I see her blue eyes or maybe she'll surprise me during the day and show up at my office and I I catch a glint of them in the sun and my heart just leaps I just just love this woman she's so great in every way um and uh, but, you know, I've probably heard her say, I love you, spontaneously, um, no times <laughs> in 31 years. It's just not who she is to say stuff like that. She's a German from Pennsylvania. It's just not going to happen. You know, it doesn't come natural for her. So I've learned to not expect her to speak that language. Um, Uh, Kathy, one of Kathy's greatest gifts to me is that she's not impressed by anything I do or say. She's just not impressed. And so that's a great thing for a person like me. (laughs) You know, so it it really works. (laughs) But I know my wife loves me because she, she knows how to tell me in her own way. And I've learned to speak her language and understand her language. And it's a great thing. And some things really just can't be said with words. Isn't it true? That is especially the case when somebody is suffering. When someone's suffering, uh, often, especially those of us who are very verbal in our nature and we like to talk about stuff, we like to say something, when we've got a friend who is suffering, we just don't know what to say. And I'll bet all of you at some time have simply avoided the person who is suffering you didn't know what to say, because you felt like you were supposed to come out with some magic words that would make it better for them. Yet, what do you say to somebody who is suffering? The passage that we've read is all about suffering. Suffering is one of the most difficult concepts in theological work. To try to come to grips with the fact that an all powerful God who is all-knowing and all love, who is love itself, nevertheless has created a world in which suffering occurs, in which suffering is inevitable. And why is it that God would let us suffer if God is good and powerful? Why doesn't God do something? And the answer is, we don't know. And if it were possible to say it in words, it would be in the Bible. If the answer to that question were possible to reduce to simple language, it would be there in the Bible for us to grab those words up and use them. And wouldn't it be great? We'd have words to fix every situation of suffering. But the thing that makes suffering what it is, is its very irrationality. Um, C.S. Lewis Lewis wrote a book called The Problem of Pain. And I've always thought that while it's a good book, it's badly titled. Because the problem isn't pain. (laughs) Pain is a neurological phenomenon. And we can explain pain pretty much down to the bottom. We understand how the brain processes it. We know what it's for. I mean, pain's a pretty rational thing. We can deal with pain. Suffering is another matter. To give you an an example, I, I love my daughters. I've got three beautiful, wonderful daughters, and there's nothing nothing like uh, having a five year old. I don't anymore. I have a seven, my youngest is seventeen, but you know, you remember what it was like to have a five year old child around? They're the most five year old children are the height of human existence. It never gets better than that. It's all downhill after that. <laughs> five year olds are the are the the, the best, and. Um, you know, they're smart. Five year, the five-year-old mind is a marvel. And um, I remember Sophie being five years old. I've got this picture of me walking with her hand in hand on the river walk in San Antonio. And it's just precious. Yeah. Um, how sweet that child is and was. And um, Imagine that, it's an awful thing to imagine, but let's do it for a minute. Imagine that I'm walking with my five-year-old Sophie along the, um, along the sidewalk And all of a sudden, a car jumps the sidewalk and is coming straight towards us. And imagine that I see it coming at the last second. And at the last possible second, I swing Sophie out of the way. And the car clips me, but doesn't hit Sophie. And by pushing her out of the way, I save her life. Well, I'm going to suffer some pain But as I lie in the hospital bed recovering, I'm not going to suffer that because I understand why I got it. This is the pain I got saving Sophie's life. That pain that I would suffer would make sense to me. And would would I say that it was worth it? I absolutely would. I would say it was worth anything to have saved Sophie's life and avoid her getting hit. I would have gladly given my life and I would be so grateful to God that that I was alive and that Sophie was fine. I wouldn't suffer that because I would be able to rationalize it. I'd be able to understand it, put some sense of meaning and purpose to it. Suffering is when you are in pain, but it's senseless. There's no answer to it. There's no words that can make it better. There's nothing to explain it. And suffering will drive us nuts. What do you do? How do you pray when you are suffering? The p- passage is all about it, suffering. It tells us that suffering is a necessary part of human life. It tells us that as Christians, our suffering is redeemed. In the fact that just as Jesus died on the cross for our sins. Was raised from the dead and waits for us in the glory that is to come. If we suffer along with Christ. As he suffered for us and with us. If we suffer with him. We will also share the glory that he has come into. And that the creation itself will enter into this glorious freedom. Of the children of God at some point. And knowing that does not solve the mystery of suffering. It's just a little bit of help. (laughs) But God does more than simply give us an answer to suffering. Which is impossible. Because it's impossible to give an answer to suffering. God's response is to join the suffering. To share it with us. And that was most powerfully done in Jesus himself dying on the cross for us. But the text that we've read here says that creation suffers with us. And groans. The creation itself in this senselessness of suffering groans. And we ourselves, it says, in the context of suffering, we groan. And it says that the spirit of God within us in the midst of the suffering, groans in us and through us. Likewise, the Bible says, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Every reputable New Testament scholar in the world recognizes that this text is talking about the gift of tongues, that God has given us spiritual equipment so that in our suffering, in front of the irrationality of suffering, God joins with us. God gives us prayer that is mysterious. Even as suffering is irrational, the gift of tongues is not rational. Yet it is the Spirit of God in us and through us, sharing in our sufferings, giving us the ability to pray to God, even when we don't know what to pray, so that edification and comfort are ours in the midst of it. As the Spirit joins us in our suffering and groans through us, we receive witness that we are the children of God so that we can call God our Father. And the spirit helps us in our weakness with this groaning too deep for rational words to express. A few years ago, I was um, invited to be part of uh, the largest Christian Muslim dialogue in the history of the world. It was called the Common Word Conference at Yale University. I've been involved in Jewish and Christian uh, dialogue and, and Muslim Christian dialogue for oh, 30 years now. And uh, it's it's been a fascinating thing to be part of, especially given the level of conflict that that is existing in the world now between Christians and Muslims, um, or between Muslims and Christians, whichever way you want to look at it. But um, anyway, we met with we met there a hundred the top hundred Muslim scholars in the world, the top well not the top Christian scholars because I was one of them, but another a hundred Christians and a hundred Muslims. Uh, we 're there together, and um, I had a Muslim roommate for that week, and we uh, It was an amazing experience, tremendous time of understanding of each other and looking for things that we had in common that we could build friendship on and try to look for ways to reconcile our communities and make peace if possible and With us, there were a few Jewish delegates. Um, One day when we were at lunch, I happened to be sitting next to a rabbi and I engaged him in conversation. I told him my name and he said, oh, I'm Rolando Matalon. And I said, are you the the rabbi of uh, Congregation Jeshurun? He said, yes. And I said, I was at your synagogue a few years ago and I didn't get to meet you. And so I, I told him about my experience. I had been there with a, with a group of, uh, of Christians. It was people of different religions that were together studying. And um, we went to visit that, that congregation because it is the most vital congregation in all of uh, New York. I mean, it's an amazing synagogue. Just so uh, passionate about worshiping God. I mean, it's, it's not a messianic Jewish uh, thing you know, where they're Christians. They're Jews, <laughs> Um, and it was just, the passion of the worship was just stunning. I was amazed, I, um, the, the, touched by the love of God that was there. And as we were walking out of the synagogue and I was approaching the door, I had this flash of terror that came over me. And I realized, because this was just right after nine eleven that every one of the people who were there had risked their lives to walk into that synagogue that day. Because there had been synagogue bombings recently and that they were they loved God enough to come at the risk of their lives and i said to the rabbi beside me um, i just had this flash of recognition of that these people have risked their lives to come here and as we got as we as, as that happened i i had this picture in my head of uh, of the synagogue in buenos aires that was bombed a few years ago and she said uh, it was a reformed rabbi so <laughs> she said <laughs> um she said, wow, that's amazing. Did you know that the, 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 the rabbi here is an Argentine from that very congregation? I said, no, I didn't know that. And she said, you know, God must have revealed that to you. That, because you're right. Everybody here comes with a sense and a knowledge that to come here is to put their life at risk. Um, and their rabbi is there as a reminder of the danger that, that they face." And so I said, I have wanted to meet you ever since then. And so we were fast friends. And we we spoke in Spanish the whole time, you know. (laughs) As soon as he said he was Matalon, I knew, Rolando Matalon, I knew we were going to speak Spanish. So we were conversing in Spanish. He said, you know, I've always wanted to meet a Pentecostal and ask about what the gift of tongues is. Could you explain it to me? And so I explained it to him, what, what the gift of tongues is. And I said, even though you are praying and your mind is not fruitful, your spirit is being edified. And God understands what you're saying. And so you just offer these words to God, even though you don't understand them. They don't make any sense to you, but they make sense to God. And uh, it's mysterious, but it's, it's just, it's, it's very edifying. It's, it always comforts me to do it. He said, oh, he said, that's really interesting. He said, there's a rabbinic story about uh, this similar. He says, that this rabbi sees a man praying in the temple. And he goes up to him and he listens, <clears throat> and the man is simply saying the alphabet. Aleph Bet Gimel Dalet hay, Vav Zayn, praying through the Hebrew alphabet, just saying the letters A, B, C, D, E, F, G. And he prays that way for some time, just repeating the alphabet over and over. And finally, when he finishes praying, the rabbi goes up to him and says, Sir, I, I heard that you were praying the alphabet. Why, why were you doing that? And he said, well, Rabbi, I just don't know what I should pray. So I'm just giving the letters to God, and he can use them any way he wants to to make up what he wants to say. <laughs> he says, is that what the gift of tongues is? And I said, well, that's pretty close. <laughs> that's pretty close. You know, we're offering these words to God. We're, by the way, we're not making them up. Um, if I had more time today, I would play a, a video for you of the, of, about the research of uh, uh, Andrew Newberg at the University of Pennsylvania, where he's actually proven that when people speak in tongues, the frontal lobe of their brain, where where, where sounds are made up, um, actually uh, decreases in activity. The blood flows out of the frontal lobe, and you can't find where in the brain speaking in tongues is coming from. It's literally not controlled by the conscious mind of the person who does it. Um, It's just a flat scientific fact that there's a difference between speaking in tongues and making up sounds. As a matter of fact, if you make up sounds, the frontal lobe leaps into action. <laughs> and if it's a, there is an actual difference in the brain if you're speaking in tongues or if you're making up sounds. But it's not that we're making up the sounds. Our mind isn't involved at all. But somehow, we offer these words to God. We don't know what they mean. Yet God does. And um, it's, a, it's a form of prayer that is mystical, that is mysterious. We don't really understand how it works, but it works. <laughs> I've been doing this for 40 years. Started speaking in tongues at the age of uh, 12. I'm, I'm 55 now, so that's actually 43 years I've been speaking in tongues. When I don't know what to pray, I pray in tongues. When I'm in a situation that is clearly beyond my abilities to understand, I pray in tongues. And it edifies, it comforts, it builds up. Um, I don't understand it, but that's the point. Not supposed to. 1 Corinthians fourteen two explains it like this. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to human beings, but to God. For no one understands him. But he utters mysteries in the spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now, I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more, to prophesy. And then in verse 14, he says, if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays. Who's praying? My spirit. How is it praying? The Holy Spirit is enabling it to do that. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will also pray with my mind. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. And so when we pray in the spirit, when we pray through the gift of tongues, our mind is not engaged. That's scientifically proven. (laughs) Um, People say people speak in tongues are out of their mind. Well, that's the point. <laughs> <laughs> As a matter of fact, there's some real benefit to getting out of your mind on this. Uh, you know, none of us live in the real world. You may think you live in the real world, but you don't. Your body exists in the real world, but you live inside your head. You live according to the way that you perceive the world, the way you interpret the world, the way the world has been explained to you. And so each one of us is living in the world that's slightly different than the others. I call it the script. From the time we are children, people are trying to tell us what we're supposed to think, how we're supposed to act, what's what, and people want to define our worlds for us. Our parents especially want to define the world for their children, so that children will obey, and children will do what they're supposed to do. They tell us all kinds of scary things when we're. They tell us fairy tales full of ogres and beasts and all this stuff to scare us so that we'll walk the straight line as they see it. And it's from childhood forward, people are constantly telling you who you are and what you're supposed to do. It's quite oppressive. I don't particularly appreciate it. <laughs> I'd kind of like to develop my own sense of the world, wouldn't you? Of course, in the 60s, everybody was trying to find themselves, right? I've always been able to find myself. I'm right here. <laughs> but you know, the thing is, the point of all that was that we, we wanted to be authentic. We didn't just want to be who somebody else said we had to be. And of course, a lot of us were abused as children, where our parents would say things to, you, to us like, you're stupid. Uh, Why do you have to be that way? You're just like your father. You're just like your mother. You're just like somebody else. Um, You you can't do anything right. Right, you must be right. And we carry these burdens through our whole life of what we've been told we are and what we have to do. Jean-Paul Sartre, the French existentialist philosopher, wrote a play, one act called No Exit. (laughs) Powerful, powerful one-act play in which there are three people. A womanizer, a coquette, and a lesbian. They're all locked in a room and there's no way out. The setting is hell. They're going to be there forever. And the coquette's trying to seduce the man and the woman. The womanizer's trying to seduce the coquette. The lesbian is trying to s- seduce the coquette. And the man and the lesbian are clashing. Each one of the three is trying to get power over the other ones. And after this dialogue goes on and on in which they're each one of them trying out these power discourses to try to get control of the situation, to get what they want, to get the advantage The man finally says, hell is other people. Now, I don't agree with Sartre about that. I think other people are wonderful. But the reason Sartre said that is that people are always trying to control us, always trying to get their way, and the power struggle just never stops. And so we have this script in our head that has been given to us by other people about how we're supposed to be and what has to be and what things should be like and you shouldn't have to suffer. Why should you not have to suffer? Everybody else has to. <laughs> I mean, we just, we've been told these things. And, you know, so often when we go to prayer, I mean, honestly, prayer in the mind is a little overrated. <laughs> Why should God do what you tell him to? And so we take our script to God in prayer. We say, God, do this and do this and give me this and give me that. And don't let this happen to me and give me success in everything I do. And you'll lay the script out from God as if you really had the wisdom to to declare how things are going to (laughs) be. And our own prayer is corrupted. Our best prayers are corrupted by our misconceptions about how things ought to be. How many are glad you didn't get everything you've asked for in prayer over the course of your life? It's just the mercy and grace of God, isn't it? Yet when you pray in tongues, you take the script and you throw it away. (laughs) When you pray in tongues, your spirit is liberated to pray to God off the script, off what others have said things ought to be, off of your own desires and, and, and everything that you would have, away from the way that you would distort the world, and you pray to God, truly saying to God, Thy will be done. Thy kingdom come. After I met the, the rabbi, we talked about this. I, three months later, I was in El Salvador, and in the middle of the night, I woke up, And uh, in my head was this idea, write a prayer that has every letter in the alphabet. And it took about 30 seconds. And I had a prayer, like, you know that sentence, the quick brown dog jumped over the lazy fox. It's got every letter in the alphabet in it. Well, within 30 seconds, I had a prayer in my head that had every letter in the alphabet. And since then, I've probably written 40 of them. So anytime I get an issue that's bothering me, I'll write an A to Z prayer about it. There's every letter in the alphabet, and when I pray that prayer i i'm saying to God, "Here are the letters <laughs> make up rearrange them any way you want to. <laughs> this is what I would do, even so, thy will be done and uh, it's just a little trick that i it's a little it's a form of poetry actually for me to to write these prayers and and I think it's vastly inferior to actually praying in tongues. <laughs> When we pray in tongues, we throw the script away. We truly say to God that we want him to rule in our lives. We truly surrender ourselves to the kingdom of God. And this is something that's for everybody. Every Christian in the whole world has the spirit of God living in them by virtue of being born again. On the day you accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, on the day when your spirit was reborn in God's presence... The Holy Spirit has been living inside you, and the Spirit that's in you longs to express this kind of prayer through you. It's there, it's for you. Everybody in the world can do it. It is a a capacity of the human spirit to be able to pray this way, and it is enabled by the Spirit of God. So the gift of tongues is for us. And as Paul said, In 1 Corinthians, I hope that you will all speak in tongues. Let us pray. I invite the band to come. We're going to have one more song of worship before we close the service. Um, Heavenly Father, I thank you for this congregation, these wonderful believers, these people whom you have begun to rule and reign in their lives. Lord, I pray for those who are currently suffering. Who are facing situations that defy explanation. Perhaps they don't even really want to understand anymore. I pray that you would comfort them by the spirit that you've caused to dwell within them. If there's anyone here who has not turned their heart and life over to Jesus, I pray that even now as I'm speaking, they would would see Jesus on the cross for them. They would see in Jesus and in his suffering on the cross and in his death and burial, they would see their own suffering. They would understand today that the Jesus who died for their sins rose for their life. They might know God through him. Lord, cause faith to rise up in their hearts and give them peace. And for all of us, Lord, would you enable the gift of tongues within us? Would you give us a desire in our hearts to speak words inspired by your spirit, to transcend our suffering, to transcend our lack of knowledge, to enable us to pray as you would pray and to see the hand of God at work in us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The band is going to lead us in worship and then I'm going to come back in just a minute and we'll finish.
2: If you would stand with me. My hope is built on nothing less then Jesus blood and righteousness I dare not trust the sweetest frame but only trust in Jesus' name My hope is built my hope is built on nothing less then Jesus blood Trust. Righteousness alone Faultless I stand before the throne
1: Freshments have been prepared, and there are people uh, downstairs waiting for those who would like to stay for some fellowship. Our time has gone away really fast. It's 1 mm-hmm. o'clock right now. So I'm going to invite uh, you to go downstairs and enjoy the time <laughs> of fellowship. Uh, but.